Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast and part two of my conversation with Thomas Webb, who's the founder and CEO of Ethical Healthcare Consulting. So in our previous conversation, we had a great um, chat about the origins, the purpose, the journey of Thomas's company, Ethical Healthcare. Um, but now I'm really keen to um, delve into Thomas's mind in respect of the oh-so-sexy world of electronic patient records. Um, Thomas, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd be a bit wary of delving into my mind, if, if I'm <laughs> honest, but we'll, we'll, go, we'll go for it and see what happens. We're only going to delve into the small portion of it that thinks about electronic patient records. So nobody need be concerned that we're going to delve any further than that. The electronic um, patient record market, um, just tell us where we are now, Thomas. Give us a, This is obviously, this is what your consultancy does. You work with NHS Trust, helping them buy, implement um, and so on um, EPRs. Just give us a, give us a, your summary or your, your view on the state of play. You know, the market as of now is dominated by uh, a number of, of large, um, what's known as mega suite suppliers. Um, and, you know, the, these systems have, have grown up over a number of years, like, well, actually more than a number of years, decades. Um, and as they've grown, they've expanded to do more and more stuff. Um, and now that they, they do everything, you know, that they're enterprise level um, bits of software. And um, yeah, and and no one buys anything other than than those now. That they, they are very very dominant in in the market. And and frankly, um, I think progress has slowed. So so what you what you typically see in this stage of the market is that let's say uh, you and I. This is totally weird going into my my brain here, Victoria. But you and I are um, are software systems, and um, you know you do you do something a bit clever, um, and I say, oh, that's something that's something a bit clever. Um, I then copy it, and uh, you know I, I cease to have um, any advantage. But you know I, I'll do something a bit clever. You you then copy it, and and that cycle continues, and what you end up with. Are systems that over time are increasingly convergent. They just do the same thing um, as each other, and innovation essentially stops. And you, like a perfect example of this is uh, primary care. Uh, you know, system one and uh, an EMS. You know, there's there's it's the ult- almost the ultimate um, sort of climax of the market is is to have basically those two and almost identical products and nothing to pick between them. So I think it's a concerning place in terms of uh, innovation and customer choice. So what what does this state of play in the EPR market, this sort of ponderous bear moths that we've um, ended up with, what does this mean for innovation? And I don't just mean for the NHS as a customer, but what does it mean for startups who maybe have got a neat idea um, and want to innovate in the market or disrupt it? What, what does it mean when they've got to be engaging with these EPRs? And in fact, how do they engage with them? Yeah, it's... It, it... It's really difficult and and it's intentionally 
difficult. So, um, you know, I, I guess you have to respect the perhaps elegance of the business model of these behemoths, but they don't interoperate. And, you know, that's a, something I think that frustrates me a little bit around the naivety of the NHS that is continually pushing for interoperability without necessarily understanding that these suppliers really don't have any interest in interoperability because it destroys their business model. You know, they they don't want competitors springing up. So let's say e-prescribing. Um, they don't want someone who is able to do e-prescribing better than their system. Um, so they don't play nicely uh, with other systems. They don't let them into their ecosystem because they will start having their business model eroded. You know, if, well, you start with e-prescribing, but then other people will do all of the kind of various bits and bobs better than your um, than your system. And, and you know, Joe McDonald actually has um, something, I have to give him um, credit where credit's due on this, where he, you know, says that the, the, the breadth of functionality is is inversely proportional to the quality and and you know that that is a threat to these large suppliers so so what it means for innovation in these small suppliers is that they are frozen out of the market it's very very difficult and if they are allowed into the market it has to be on the terms of these larger suppliers but um but i, I i'm hopeful that um that the market is on the verge of um, a bit of a, a point of disruption. And what gives you what gives you reason for that hope, Thomas? I think I have to start here and, and credit Simon Wardley for opening my opening my mind to, to this. So if anyone, um, if you just go Google Simon Wardley or go look at his um, his Twitter feed, um, then that's um, yeah, that's really enlightening. So he's opened my mind on this, but. In essence, what happens over time is is markets develop uh, across a number of stages. So you start off with something being invented, uh, then customized versions of things uh, start being start being made. You know, people start playing with it and, and trying to improve things, and then things become productized, and that's where they become widespread in society, very scalable, reproducible, and. And the market enters uh, what's sort of known as as a peace um, phase that's characterized by, as I've mentioned before, convergence of functionality and and sort of quite slow innovation, really. No no sort of quantum leaps in in anything happening. It's sort of a a gentle competition. And and that will will persist. then what you see happening is you see uh, this phase of what's known as war, where things will suddenly get disrupted by commoditization, industrialization of something, and standardization of something. And a good example of this is um, is computing, for example. You know, everyone used to buy their servers, and everyone had big data centers. And then the cloud came along and completely revolutionized the way software is is developed. Uh, and provided to people, and and you see, in all of our lives, it happens. So, um, technology such as uh, television, television has been um, completely commoditized. We now consume television on our own terms. It, you know, it comes out. Of, it comes out of the internet now. We we stream it. The same with music. Music has taken that that um, you know move away from CDs and things like that into uh, into being streamed. Uh, computer games it, it it happens and it's happening digital photography it, you know it's this stuff is inevitable it 
it happens. And um, and what what I'm seeing in the market is that actually the digital health EPR market is right on that tipping point. It's right. It's right there. So you know that the tipping point is characterised by large, very profitable organisations with, with with very cumbersome software, very uh, full of legacy code, very difficult to to work with, but but dominant in the market. Um, and and when you sort of reach that point, and you're also seeing the start of a new way of of uh, delivering software. So instead of the monolithic uh, way that most software is developed, you, you're starting to see uh, distributed architectures uh, arriving. And, and without without um, being too too boring about it, what that allows is it allows software to be developed and changed a much more accelerated pace in a cloud native way and we're actually starting to see software providers um so uh, nerve center for example have moved into that space uh, alcidian has moved into that space and if you imagine diffusion happens on an s-shaped curve at the minute we're at the peak of that curve the best software out there right now is these monolithic suppliers but right underneath that peak is another curve that is starting and is accelerating much faster than the current curve, which is plateaued. And people like Nerve Center and Alcidian and others are on that curve. And I think that my challenge with the NHS is they are always buying the best thing for today and they're never buying the best thing for tomorrow. Well, can I just jump in there, Thomas, because I guess that's the other thing we've got to factor in here. And, and as you were speaking, I was starting to think about the NHS as a customer and that being part of the challenge as well. So I was speaking to a very wearisome CCIO um, earlier this week who is um, who's who's managing and battling with multiple systems and and his IT team, that the cost to his team, he was telling me, of having to manage the relationships and the competing sort of, um, and he's trying to upgrade here and something else is happening here. And he was just like, all I want is one big system because it, this is just exhausting. Like the opportunity cost is so great. So, so, so when you've got lots of multiple systems, you've got lots of clinical safety assessments, lots of relationships to manage as an NHS organisation. And the NHS doesn't find it very easy to be a customer either. So when you're thinking about that S-shape and that curve, how do you factor in the NHS as a buyer of systems into that sort of picture you've got, the tipping point? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, I agree, it is, it is very, it is very tricky. And, and managing all of those suppliers and all of those relationships and all of the integrations is difficult. However, part of the sort of the new architectural paradigm that's coming out is this idea of a platform. So what you can have is, um, you know, a standard platform and, a, and, and modular elements plugging into that. And it's not your responsibility to make it all work together. Um, you know, if, if if you look at, say, Amazon, for example, um, the, the service that they offer is they offer sort of plug and play stuff, stuff that just works, works together. And that's stuff that they offer because they curate their platform. Um, so they make it easy for their customer to move to that. 
And that is what's happening. Um, you see, um, so better, they offer a standard um, sort of open, open air, it, it's called open data platform that you can start to build upon. So these, these ecosystems, these platforms are in development. And I think you can look at them and go, oh, you know, but they're immature and, and all of this, which is completely right. But they won't be immature forever. And they are out accelerating the current crop of suppliers. And, you know, you just you just extrapolate that and you see, well, OK, you know, in the coming years, the, the market will be disrupted. But, you know, going back to the way NHS buys things, the, the challenge is these systems are so big and so complicated that you, you buy sort of 10, 15-year contracts. Um, and, and actually, that's, that's a very slow rate of evolution uh, for, for a market. You know, it's um, so I, I have a background in genetics and, and the, the organisms that evolve quickest are ones that reproduce quickest. And and so when you know your opportunity for change, it comes along every fifteen years. You, um, yeah, it's very difficult to uh, to have a high rate of innovation. But especially when your client doesn't can't see. Um, again, I'm I'm going to quote Joe here, but it's the NHS has a habit of being um, crushed by giant snails. Um, you know, you can't seem to get out of the way of them. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one actually. Um, so, so okay. So, tell you, you've mentioned open standards. I think some of those providers that you've um, described, that new breed of provider, have open source software. Just, just describe the future for me in terms of open standards and open source, and where you see that going. Yeah. So, so again, I, I think these are one of the things that I view as sort of inexorable. Um, the rise of open open source. So um, the digital health uh, area is not immune to industry trends, and um, and of course it is resistant to it. But um, but you know you look at from Microsoft, a really good example. They resisted open source for um, for for a long time, and then they did an about term, and and they bought GitHub. And now they're an open source based company, Android open source. It, it's taking over the world. So this idea that open source won't take over digital health is is a nonsense. I, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball to say in this year, open source will become prevalent in the NHS. But what I can tell you is that it will become prevalent in the digital health space. And 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 open standards. I I feel that instead of the national program, if the NHS actually just sat down and invested properly in defining centrally open standards, open data storage standards, then that would which you know open air is the is the leading one. So you wouldn't need to reinvent the wheel, but accelerating the maturity and standardisation of open air. It would solve interoperability. I mean, that 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 is actually what it would do. That you know, the 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 problem with interoperability is people focus on messaging standards, but the core of it, the root cause of it, is that systems store things in different ways, in proprietary ways. And actually, if you just said no, you've all got to store it in this way, then interoperability would 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 be solved uh, largely. But if, but of course. That would mean re-architecting a system that you've spent 30 years building and is full of legacy code and 
that's the, that's the challenge in the market. Mm. So, so Thomas, thinking, keeping on your optimistic vision, um, if I'm a CIO in, um, I don't know, a community mental health trust in 10 years' time and what you have imagined has come to pass, what, what's life like for me? What's my, what's my life like as a CIO with this future vision where the marketplace has tipped and we've got this new breed of more disruptive EPRs that are modular, open source, open standards and so on? It's bloody marvellous. <laughs> so I think what it, what it would mean, you have your own dev team because you're able to develop solutions, you know, on top of your open, open source, open data standards platform. So trust would be able to take their fate into their own hands or at least have choice about how they do it. Because you have that dev team and you have the agility and the flexibility to, to to develop things quickly, you'd have your design, you'd have your service design team as well. They go hand in hand. So, so what you yeah, what you'd have is is basically a much more responsive um and accurate, I guess, uh digital environment. But away from all of that, so you know that that's that's your own organization. But what you'd also have is you would have data that is transferable across sector and organizational boundaries. Um, you'd have a single source of truth. And because of that, you know, the, the innovation that is possible when you work on open standards is remarkable. If you think about what would happen if if we'd never standardized electricity, you know, if there were about five different flavors of electricity, It'd be an absolute nightmare. But as soon as you standardized on that one thing, people said, right, okay, I know what we're working with now. And and standardization begets innovation. And it's it's perverse. People seem, you know, to struggle with the idea. But actually, the more you standardize your foundations, the more innovation you will get. And so if we did move to this open standards, open stories, the the proliferation in the marketplace of innovation would be extraordinary it would it would it would be huge and again it would the the innovation within that ecosystem would dwarf the level of innovation that we currently have in the marketplace thomas i love your vision of the future and um i'm going to keep my fingers crossed that everything you say um is um on the near horizon if we were to make one small change now that could have a big impact this is always my closing question on this podcast what would it be what would you like to see happen if it was happening next week or next year? So something fairly small, fairly soon that could get us closer to that vision that you describe. I think investment in the community. So signal to people that it's OK to back open source and that, that centrally uh, there is support for it and there is training around it and there is education around it. You know, if, if you build it, they will come. So and it doesn't need to be, you know, the, the, the budgets for digital are staggering. You know, the frontline digitization program, we're spending two billion pounds on this. So, you know, a hundred thousand pounds, two hundred thousand pounds, it's a it's a rounding error in the spreadsheet would would be absolutely would do marvels. Um for just that, you know, there is a community out there and I think they feel neglected and um and abandoned just to say, no, you know, we are we are going to invest in you. It's okay. We've got your back. You're able to take risks. That's I think that's the, that's it actually we we support you taking risks and taking a bit of a first step into the unknown. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on the Digital Ecology podcast. It's been fantastic to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much. It has been brilliant for me as well. I didn't know I was full of so much uh, waffle. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's marvellous waffle. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.